And we are back. Thank you so much for sticking with us. And a little bit different this time, doing an interview. And we're going to put more of this. I don't know. We'll see. Maybe maybe we'll put the entirety of it on, uh, on the show today. Uh, But I'm joined with our head of research, Chase Taylor, um, the proprietor of Pinecone Macro. It's how, how a macro research firm that Chase owns. And that's how we started working together. He's been on with us several times. And a lot of you probably hear us do the daily dots for, again, for those of you that don't know, we do about a 15, try to keep it between 15 to 20 minutes a day. Uh, again, we just think we're in really historic times and, you know, just basically memorializing or observing on a day-to-day basis of every single day, every move that happens and trying to, the goal was to make a 15 to 20 minute daily podcast that breaks down everything important that happened in markets and the economy that day. And in financial news and geopolitically, right, everything that relates to money and finance, um, just because we want to document what we think is a pretty historic time. And uh, so the other reason we did it is because um, and it's not because we disagree with them, but there's just there's just so much bad financial news out there. You turn it on and you, you know, you do this for a living. You see what happens in a day and you turn it on and listen to what they're talking about. And it, it, it just they're just usually so far off. And just moronic. So we just wanted to give a, a, a daily update where people can get the real deal, right? What was really going on? So anyway, uh, Chase, you are here with us today. Thank you so much for joining us, my friend. Always. I know you. you I know you really look forward to doing these. Uh, well, you, you don't mind, right? It's not your favorite thing, but you don't mind coming on and doing these things, do you? No, not at all. Okay. Well, there you go, uh, man. One of the things I want to have you on for is especially on the show, right? The radio show that, that the folks are all listening to. Um, just because I feel like w- we are watching an extraordinarily synchronous, at least I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. I'll let you kind of lay out the scenario, but there's still so much talk and so much belief. There's still much so uh, ebullience built up around the market moves this year and it, it, the price action, it, it's really, it, it's really exciting. Everybody's, oh, markets come back. Um, and what's really fascinating to me is the juxtaposition with the actual underlying data, because the market and the economic fundamentals are literally heading in opposite directions right now. Um, and the synchronization of the bad economic data. And I don't want to be hyperbolic, you know, like we say on the dots, it's not horrible yet, but it, the synchronization, the uniformity of it is that's what's surprising to me that more people aren't paying attention. So why don't you kind of lay out again, that's, that's sort of my rendition, me teeing you up and you can feel free to agree or disagree with different points that I made, but why don't you kind of give everybody a 30,000 foot view um, from the economic data side? And and just kind of explain to us, me and the, you know the listeners, everybody listening, what's really going on because the stories and the narratives they're hearing in the mainstream media they're just not accurate. So lay out for us what what we really see happening in the data. Sure. So I think I think what happened really is is the third quarter has really gotten a lot of people kind of confused because we had what's now five point two percent GDP growth. And I think people take GDP growth a little too seriously when it comes to markets and the economy even um, on its own. But I think a lot of people extrapolated that. And the reality was it was kind of a one-off quarter, which is starting to show itself. But 
when it comes to economic data, I'll start with the fact that, yeah, we had a 5.2% growth in the third quarter. But as of this afternoon, the Atlanta Fed has the fourth quarter GDP growth at 1.2%. And that's down from 2.1% just two weeks ago. And that the downward revision to that was mostly consumer spending. So the consumer just went off in the third quarter. I mean, they just they spent a lot of money. And it seems like the consumer is kind of finally pulling back um, here in the fourth quarter. And, you know, this is something we've talked about a lot on the show, especially the Daily Dots um, in, in the last few weeks and even months was – you had a lot of catalysts to possibly get the consumer to slow down, whether that was running out of excess savings or um, their wages, wage gains slowing down or having to pay back student loans. There was just kind of a lot going on right around the like October, you know, early October, late September kind of time frame. And it seems like it might actually be materializing to where that stuff is, you know, pressing the consumer at this point, not to mention just, just, uh, you know, interest rates. The, we we can see in the data the fact that um, interest payments as a percentage of disposable income for households is all of a sudden skyrocketing. So you know it's actually squeezing people, um, especially young people. So not to mention, so one of the data points I think that has has kept us so anchored and not getting too excited about things like great growth in the third quarter was delinquency rates. So people not paying on time for things like auto loans and credit cards and um, similar, you know, household debt. The fact, the fact that so that that was skyrocketing and we're not talking about like back to pre pandemic. We're talking about over a decade highs, kind of like the aftermath of the GFC after a lot of people defaulted. And we're talking about those levels for things like cars um, and credit cards. And these people have jobs. So it's just, it was really hard to move off of that data point for me personally, because if you can't make your car payment with a job, if you lose your job, it's going to be a big problem. Um, and we haven't really seen a lot of job losses yet, but we are seeing hiring really weaken. Um, and then something I, I mentioned to you yesterday, but in the jobless claims data that came out yesterday, so in any any state that has more than a thousand new claims, they offer them the opportunity to basically put in a comment about it. And three different states mentioned. Um, job losses piling up in, in construction, which really that, that kind of really stood out to me. That's something we've been talking about again for months, like as a thing to really keep an eye on. Um, but throughout that whole third quarter, whenever we had really strong growth, manufacturing stayed in a recession, retail companies like really didn't do that well. Uh, even services, um, purchasing managers, indexes, things like that. They, they I mean, they were, they were okay, but they weren't that strong. So you had a lot of underlying data you could look at and then that was telling you, sure, we're having a great quarter, um, but A, it's not going to sustain and, and, and B, it, it it's not going to you know preclude us from having a significant slowdown going into 2024. Well, so the, the data really is showing us that we're – at the end of the day, what it's showing us is, is inflation is coming down a lot and growth is now starting to come down uh, somewhat materially. Well, yeah, and, and – for those people out there that would celebrate the inflation coming down, um, remember, guys, that's not always a good thing. It's usually not a good thing, meaning that's what happens in recessions, right? Like they, that's what happens. Like that's it, – it's an economy contracting is deflation, right? It's the opposite of inflation. So it's it, – that's why I've been kind of laughing about 
uh, you know, the Biden administration taking victory laps on inflation, you're like, well, first of all, uh, you're still way above the Fed's target, at least on CPI. Um, I guess their target is to PCE, but whatever. Um, and you're sitting there going, yeah, well, guys, that's, you know, in a recession, <laughs> inflation goes down. Um, and I think you hit, I think you hit something that is really pertinent in all of this too, was discussing the construction jobs. And this is one of the reasons, and I guess this is the point that I was getting to, it it doesn't surprise, and I know it doesn't surprise me at all. It doesn't surprise you at all to see construction starting to roll over. Meaning, you know, that's one of the reasons we keep an eye out at leading economic indicators, right? When you see uh, permits for multi housing and all that, you know, for for construction, when you see permits and architectural plans plummeting, uh, it's pretty good indication that you're going to have a slowdown in construction, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the funny thing about that that kind of data is it. it it pretty much genuinely lets you know where you're heading. Um, so it's kind of a, despite the fact most people just ignore it anyway, but, but at the same time, you know, it, it's been something that we, or at least I have definitely expected to kind of peak and roll over, I would say for the last few months and it so far it, it hasn't. And we got construction spending data out today. Um, that was, you know, better than expected. So, but, but at the same time, like all I see whenever I look at, Construction jobs is, uh, yes, current strength, obviously, but really what I see is future, like it's just the opportunity for a lot of future weakness because we have so many uh, construction jobs right now that, I mean, you just kind of dig in and you realize like that it's not going to stay that way because you're not going to be building a record amount of apartments uh, or, you know, EV plants or whatever here in 18 months or something. And if we, well, so if you look, if you go back to the highest construction jobs that ever gotten to before the, the pandemic, and then you look at where they're at today. So you would, I don't think people really realize this, but you, you went from, you know, like 1.6, 1.7, something like that million and all the way to, you know, like one point like nine or something. So you're, it's a significant number higher than pre pandemic. Um, and just, again, going back to those permits and starts and everything, it, it, it's really clear that that number is going to come down significantly in the next couple of years. Yeah. Um, like I said, it's the uniformity of the data and the consistency of it did take a little bit longer. Interesting though, somewhat anecdotal, but, but not really that. And you love anecdotal anyway. Uh, but really not because I spoke to a, the head of a, not national, but a very large uh, construction firm uh, in this in in the Pacific Northwest West Coast area. Uh, probably a lot of the listeners would know who it who it, the company anyway. And um, his statements were right in line with several other builders of different various sizes. You know, guys that you know build you know three or four apartment complexes a year to guys that you know build a few homes a year, you know, just, I've talked to several people up and down that thing and they're all saying the same thing. And including this guy who's like, Hey, we're finishing the jobs we're working on, but there are, there is zero demand coming from anywhere to build anything, you know, that, that isn't currently in process. And our plan is to wrap up our current projects and batten down the hatches and prepare for a rough ride. Like that's, and, and, you know, his comment was just, there's just nothing out there. No, there's no new jobs coming to the fore. Uh, 
anything that comes up typically can't get financed. Um, it's, 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 so again, I'll keep using this word. If in your own words and in your own tone, um, how consistent, I don't want to overspeak it, but I'm, I am, I think one of the things that makes macro tough is there's almost always data points to the contrary, right? Like 100%. It, almost always, this is one of those th- times where I honestly don't really recall a macro setup that was this consistent. I mean, I'm sure we could find a, a, a data point to the opposite side somewhere, but w- w- that's my interpretation. W- would you agree with that? And And if so, how consistent is this data? Oh, I mean, very, uh, the, there's, there's really not a way, you know, mathematically to get a bunch of, uh, you know, to have permits, you know, fall 30, 40% and then have construction jobs stay resilient for a significant amount of time. Like it, that's, it's true. It's a very tight relationship and it's one that obviously makes a lot of sense. Um, and because we actually slowed down. Uh, building in the last few years, like it took longer to complete the projects and everything. And because of that, like we've never had more under construction all at one time in history. So, so obviously the amount of people, you know, in residential construction today is, is that's why it's a hundred thousand people more than it was in 2019, 2020, because you just have that much more building. So, you know, looking at that, like, okay, take it, you, you built this that much bigger of like a pig and a Python where once it comes through, there's just nothing behind it. Right. Um, that's not to say, you know, when construction jobs are going to, you know, go down by 200,000 or something, but even going back to like the 2019 level and I'm, and I would absolutely assume we overshoot that and go below it. But even if you just went back to that, that's a hundred thousand people out of work. I mean, and, the, and those are, you know, those are pretty good, you know, breadwinner type jobs. Um, and on the flip side, you we have the, the manufacturing construction, which is also booming. So, for the construction as a whole, I mean, it's just it's just never probably been better in the history of the country um, for people to get fine work in construction. And it's just really clear if you look out, you know, a year or two, like it it won't be that good anymore. So those people will lose jobs, and that will have knock on effects um, in the economy for people that supply them and people that you know, feed them and things like that. Like there's just going to be some feedback loops that start when these people do lose their jobs. And the the crazy thing is what we'll, what we'll end up seeing is you're going to have a random month uh, at some point, and there's going to be a pretty significant amount of construction jobs lost. And everyone's going to say all that. No one could have seen that coming. Like that was a big shock. Yeah. Even though it, it, it's really not that difficult to see coming. Yeah. The, 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 and, and that's, you know, and you and I talk about this on a daily basis, but that's the whole mind blower of it is I, I don't, and I, I've seen some times, man. I, I think the January, 2020, I remember, you know, market was up 13% uh, over the first 30 days of 2020 and the global economy was shutting down and the market was just offsides. Even that, uh, because there were other things that looked okay at the time, you know, you can kind of understand that a little bit more and the unprecedented nature of it. Um, I cannot recall a time in my career, even going into 08 or 09, um, prices were nowhere near this crazy. I, I, I've just, I've never seen a period where I felt like markets were this detached from underlying reality. And, and to be clear, 
neither of us, and we've said this over and over and over, we're not expecting a depression. Like we're not saying that, but for markets to be this excited and this expensive based on the underlying economic data, and then not even just the underlying economic data, you know, you go look at the individual companies themselves. I mean, not all of them, right? Not yet. Everything's clearly slowing down, but you're watching. I mean, it's just, it's just fascinating to me. The, the analogy I used earlier is that people being, and nobody knows exactly how these things shake out and we don't claim to either, but I think it's really hard to look at this setup and, and, and look at the whole soft landing, no landing narrative and say, look, I'm not saying unequivocally, I know you're wrong. I, I'm not capable, you know, unless we can see in the future, nobody's capable of making that assertion with 100% certainty. But what it does feel like is that the market's convinced itself that the safest bet to play is betting on the 10 game parlay, you know, where you're like, hey, it's, it's not impossible. But you realize that like 99.8% of those bets go, right? You just get thrown away, right? There's a reason that your $20 bet will pay out three grand, right? Because it's highly unlikely. And it's just odd to see the market pricing in the least likely outcome. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> absolutely. It, it's the, the weird thing to me is what we're seeing, to, in, in my opinion, is is absolutely fully pricing in a soft landing. So everyone wants growth down they want demand down like that that's what gets the the federal reserve to chill out maybe even do some preemptive cuts um but it seems like everyone just assumes like hey yeah that's that's what this is uh so everyone just i think assumes like well that just means you know gdp growth goes from from 5 to 2 inflation goes from you know 4 to 2 uh unemployment goes from 3 and a half to 4 but it, all that just pauses there. Like it all just get, gets frozen at like these optimal levels um, and like doesn't keep going. Uh, that that feels like what the market at the moment is pricing in. And that just doesn't I, make any sense. Does it feel like it? I, I, I don't I, – I, I mean when you're looking at the S&P at just shy of 26 times earnings, um, I, th this is where the whole narrative breaks down for me. And so feel free to conflict and fill in blanks. But – You've got a market that's priced in a way that reflects at least the nominal growth rates we're seeing in the economy, right? Like, so in my opinion, if you believe that, if, if, if you're just, if you're a, you know, a huge, a huge proponent, you're all ginned up about that 8% nominal growth rate or actually 8.3% nominal growth rate or whatever it was that we saw in Q3, um, that's the kind of growth rate that supports 26 times earnings. It, even if you roll with it, yeah, well, the economy is going to slow down, you know, and you're like, okay, so let's roll out your scenario. Even a slowdown in the economy doesn't support these prices here, does it? I mean, no, but this, I think this, what really, this really just goes back to more of a behavioral thing and a, and a flow thing than it does right. know, pure fundamentals at the end of the day. For, I mean, for for reasons that make sense and and for reasons that that don't. I mean, anytime the Fed goes from raising to to like all of a sudden they're they're done and they're talking, you know, people are thinking about cuts. That is just something that gets the market fired up every single time. So we're just in that window where oh, the Fed's done and now there's hints of cuts. The market just loves that, and it every cycle in history the market loves that. Um, and it kind of prices in a soft landing and there's tons of headlines about a soft landing. And it's not until the data 
basically runs through those barriers of soft landing that the market will kind of takes notice. So like I say, 2% growth, like 2% inflation, like, you know, these like optimal levels that everyone thinks like 4% unemployment, like we're just going to stay at all those. And then everything's fine because that means the economy keeps going. There's no recession. The fed can cut, but not because of bad stuff, just because things are better. Um, it is very, very Goldilocks thing to price in, but the way it works pretty much every cycle that I've studied is that's what, that is exactly what the market prices in. So I, to me, that is what you're doing. You're, you can keep your earnings forecast high because you're not going to have a recession. You can, you know, you can just lower the discount rate because the Fed's going to cut rates just, just you know, to have your back because inflation's coming down. Well, um, I know, it, but it's okay, like so a very optimal scenario. Six months One ago, never plays out. Six six months ago, you and I were both getting much more pushback on our economic viewpoint and just sitting there looking at people's earnings per share estimates for 2024 and just shaking our heads, going, "That's insane." Um. Now we're watching earnings forecasts coming down across the board. The market still isn't even paying attention to that. I mean, yeah, it, I, <laughs> I so don't really, know what, so what you've really had lately is just pure, you know, forward multiple expansion, just flat out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, in, in a lot you know, and in a lot of cases, a lot of those issues that are getting multiple expansion are seeing earnings contractions already. Like that's the, <laughs> That's the other thing, man. I mean, the only thing I think that could make this make sense is if this market is sniffing out hyper def- like hyperinflation or something or, or, like or that. Or to be fair, a, productiv- a productivity surge, I mean, would would absolutely make all of it make sense and then some. So I, I if, if you say, hey, there's a 20% chance of an explosion in productivity because of all the technological change I, and that's just kind of working its way into forward multiples, I, I think you know that's not insane. Yeah, I mean, it's not. It's possible. But then if you go look at margins and where margins have been for the last few years, um, it, you know, what margins, Jeremy Grantham's favorite, favorite or famous quote, the most mean reverting data set in history. Uh, it's really tough to see an explosion of margins from here, isn't it? I mean, I, I, I mean, it is for me, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, but at the same time, I will say they, they've stayed stickier around where they're at so far than I thought would happen. So maybe they can just keep surprising me. Well, I don't know. I my feeling is a year from now we'll look back and a lot of those. <clears throat> I think a lot of those margins, a lot of those profits are going to are in retrospect are going to look very transient. Um, I, think I, I agree. Yeah, I think there's a lot of window dressing going on. I think there's a lot of channel stuff. I I don't think I know there's a lot of channel stuffing going on. You can see it in the individual issues. You can see it in the, you know, increased revenues and and uh, sliding margins. You know, we read about it in so many. You know, so much of that GDP, a big chunk of that GDP growth in Q3 was liquidation of back inventories. Um, and uh, yeah, that's the, that's the interesting thing to me is a macro guy and nowhere near as uh, macro guy as you are, but as a macro guy myself, I've just, I don't really have any comps to where I've ever looked at such a big swath of data and all of it was so consistent. And yet the market was just completely ignoring it. You know, you, usually it's kind of split, right? And part of the market believes this side of the data and part of the market believes that side of the data. And that's usually the way it is going into recessions, right? Like it's not usually that clear. You look at this now and 
I, as of right now, you look at it and go, this looks like a recession. I mean, doesn't it? Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, it, it, it at least looks like the the kind of early innings, um, you know, what like what you would expect at the at like during that entrance phase. Um, well, in the starting my, point, my, this, the, the, in the starting point, I think this is what you were sort of alluding to, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, so you feel free to correct me, but I feel like this is what you were alluding to as it related to construction, and I think this is something that really hasn't been fleshed out a lot and doesn't have a lot of context to it, which is. Where we're starting from matters a lot too, right? If the unemployment rate was 5% right now, I think that alone would make things look more murky. You know, uh, uh, if construction jobs weren't so, right? But when you look like you're expecting this car to continue on at 100 miles an hour, but you're acknowledging that the gas light's on and it's got a flat tire. You know what I mean? Like where you're like, it's it's not that the car's broken down. It's just you're not going to be able to maintain that speed. Right. And that's that's the thing I think that is tripping up a lot of people. They're not understanding that if you if you just pull back to, you know, just pull back to norms or 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 longer term averages, that's a recession. You know, it doesn't need to be a big plunge. Right. But it's just you, anyway, I, I the analogy I use, I feel like the, the Fed and the government injected nitrous oxide and everybody convince themselves that that four cylinder engine is now a V8, you know, and it'll act like a V8 as long as there's nitrous, but the nitrous is gone. Do you think that's a fair analogy? Yeah, too. And and to me, like what some people view as strength is like exactly what I view as essentially like, as a, like almost like a potential energy for weakness. Like whenever something is like a, doing the best it's ever done, um, and it's clearly not a new like secular trend. It's like a cyclical extreme. Like I, that's not that's not something for me to view as strength moving forward. It's something for me to view as strength today and looking backwards and and, and basically a problem moving forward. And then that again going back to construction. That's how I view that or just you know employment there. And I think so. One, one thing I do want to address, and I think people would push back on because it is a dominant dominant narrative. It's like a it went from like a, a, a an accepted fact. To a law of nature that we are underbuilding homes in America. I love you can this. Ask yes, anybody, and that's what they they how they view it. And I, I got triggered the other day. I was watching a guy I love and respect a lot in this industry, and he just kept parroting that line. Um, he was getting really bullish home builders because of it, and I was like, and I just had this in the back of my mind over and over, like maybe that's not right. But you know, like sometimes narratives are just so dominant, like you don't even want to do the work. You're just like. There's no way that's wrong. But- I, it, it, just as a comp, I was having this conversation this morning. It, it was just like our gold trade at the end of 2015 when the whole narrative at the time was the minute Fed starts raising interest rates, gold's going to get crushed. And you're like, well, that's not the way it's played out in the past. As a matter of fact, gold's highest inflation adjusted price ever was coincided with record high interest rates, right? But like it's where the narrative, even though you know it's wrong, it just takes over. Yeah, exactly. And so if you if you actually look at the – so doing a deep dive on the data on something that everyone just assumes is an absolute stone-cold lock is, is very valuable because if you if you put the investment in to look at the data on something everyone knows is true and then it's not, like that's that's just a really big opportunity. So that's what I've done with, with – have we overbuilt? And the answer is actually no. Uh, ha- have we underbuilt in the last few years? Like since since the GFC, sure. But if you back out before the GFC, everyone just forgets that we overbuilt 
going into that event. And that, I mean, that helped cause it, right? Um, but if you kind of combine the underbuilding of the last few years with the overbuilding leading into that bubble, if you come out on net, it, it's actually we've overbuilt. And then now we're building the most units of housing in, in history. So from 2000 to 2007, 160 homes were built for every 100 household formations. So you were, I mean, you were basically building twice as many homes as you needed. And if you back out and go from the whole last like 23 years, we grew by 18 and a half million households and we added 23.7 million housing units. So we've built a surplus of three and a half million housing units in the last two decades, a little over two decades. So we've already built too much. And then, then, you know, in the last two decades, and then at the moment we're building the most we've ever been building in history. And that's despite the fact that population growth is at a snail's pace compared to what it was in 2000, let alone go back to the seventies last time we were even close to building this many um, units of housing. Yeah, and then I, you take you take how broke young people are, as we're seeing from all that delinquency data we we're just talking about. They're all going to find roommates or move back in with mom and dad, and then that makes this whole overbuilding picture that much more substantial. So, the potential for both rent rents to be very low and keep inflation low, and for pain for the the building industries for apartments and homes, like it it that potential is really there. Yeah, I I. I've pushed back on that one from the very beginning just because it never really made any sense to me. But after looking at the research that you did on it and looking at those numbers, I, I again, I think there's a big confusion and misunderstanding. We are not underbuilt. We're underowned, meaning that there's plenty of homes. They're just held, you know, two home ownership is at a record high, the Airbnb craze, BlackRock buying up, right? Like it, it, there aren't enough homes to purchase. I get it, but that doesn't mean there aren't enough homes out there. You yeah, think that's the, fair. That last part is perfectly stated. Yeah, because right. I mean, yeah, the existing home like supply is historically low, but that's you know the the golden handcuff thing and the fact that if rates are going to be up here, you know, either home prices got to collapse or you're just not going to sell any of them. Yeah, so, yeah, and but, I just but like you say that people are people are literally confusing those two things. Like, well. If the existing home supply is low, that must mean we we haven't built enough. No, it's it's a finance problem, not a not a you know a brick and mortar problem. Yeah, well, the other thing too Literally. is is I <laughs> it's been funny. Um, it it doesn't make sense with the last fifteen years. Like if if we weren't short homes in twenty nineteen, how in the world are we now? Right, right. and 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 in fact, if you go back to like twenty eighteen and just do a basic housing units per person um, graph. It is about 2018 that we started to actually go back up to just using the basic like person to, to housing unit ratio. We see that the underbuilding since uh, 09, we've actually basically retraced half of that. So we've, we've put half of it back in because we're building so much right now. And again, people, I just don't think people realize that. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> I know. I, I think there are a lot of people, that, p things that people aren't listening to or aren't realizing. And <clears throat> I, and it's always, it, it's not different. It's always been like this, but just, you know, that's the, and you alluded to this earlier, that's the danger of listening to narratives and listening to memes to make investment decisions because, exactly. <clears throat> and, and I can't, 
and we've said this on the show a bunch of times, but I can't reinforce this enough to listeners just because somebody's on the TV and runs a financial firm or is introduced as an analyst or whatever. Don't assume it means they know what they're talking about. Moreover, don't even assume they've actually done the work. I, I, I will never look, we're not right about everything. Nobody is. But if we don't know, we're going to tell you. And moreover, we'll come back and say, hey, we got this wrong. Right? Like, I've done that multiple times now talking about how um, I was way too cautious coming out of the money dump that, you know, happened during COVID. We got it wrong. Uh, now, we owned up to it and flipped the other way and had, had, had a pretty nice year and a half, two year almost run. But, um, we, you know, we, we'll come back and correct the record. Most people won't. And it, and it just from being in the industry and now being somebody that is talking on the air at least once a week or multiple times a week, um, it. You just got to be careful out there because I, I just cannot tell you how many examples and you and I could probably sit here for five hours talking about different examples, but you just hear these people talk and it's like, Hey, I, I'm not saying that what, you know, that, that the conclusion they're coming to is 100% wrong and it's, and it can't happen. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that person just said something that isn't true. Right. And, and not because I think they're trying to deceive you but because they haven't done the work and it's painfully obvious. And it's just, I think that housing meme, well, we're so over, you know, we're so underbuilt. We're so underbuilt. Everybody just keeps parroting it and you go look at the data and it just very clearly shows that's not the case. Right. Yeah. And I think this is, uh, you know, really it's a microcosm for everything now where just no one, do, no one does the work. I mean, if there's a shortcut these days, that's what people are going to take. Uh, you know, it takes time and effort to go dig into all the data and, and actually think about it and, and not to mention, think, look at the data that goes back past one, two, three, five, ten years, you know, and be able to put it into context. But I mean, to me, that there really is edge in doing the work, doing long form work. I think, you know, in a in an age where uh, twenty second TikTok videos dominate any sort of long form content, um, and more people, you know, people would rather text than do a phone call. Like any any layer you can think of 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 doing it shorter and faster. That's what people want. So, well, and, and, and we've got examples of this working multiple examples of this working in the past. It's why you and I were both pounding the table screaming, you know, I don't know if it was two and a half, three years ago, exactly when it was, but just energy as a buy when guys like Kramer are on the air saying it's uninvestable and you're just, and then everybody just keeps parenting. Well, you know, oil's uninvestable and you're sitting there going, guy, it's never been better. You're just not doing the work. You're not looking. Well, oil companies are garbage. Why? Because they have too much debt and they don't return cash to shareholders. Have you gone and looked at their balance sheets lately? Have you read the corporate statements and the corporate affirmations saying we are determined to? Re you know what I mean? Like you could see that everybody was off sides, but we're just going to keep prepare. We're just going to keep parroting this meme rather than actually do the work and look for ourselves. Right. And I think coal was even a better example because yeah. I mean, absolute consensus that it was if not dead yet, an absolute dying um, industry that was just going to go away soon. I, I still remember doing my initial deep dive on that. And I, my basic assumption was that the use of coal had been dramatically falling for the last few years. Just based on all the narrative you see, like it was just like, oh, this thing's dead, you know. And then you go look and you're like, oh, wow, uh, coal production and usage not only hasn't gone down, but it's at an all-time high and, and climbing. And you're just like... Well, if that's true, while everyone thinks it's it's dying and dead and pricing it that way, like, well, this is a great opportunity. Yeah, uh, there shouldn't be that many opportunities to find things where 
the consensus is just dead wrong and it would have taken them an hour of work to realize it, but it, it really does happen it, it, at least once a year, I find. Yeah. And, and look, we obviously, do, I mean, I think we say this enough. People should know this by now. We obviously do not have some ridiculous level of confidence that we're smart and everybody else is stupid no, no, no. Um, at all. <laughs> we've been doing this too long. Um, but what it does show, and this is one of the things we've been trying to explain to our clients, um, especially this year, because it's been a tough year. Uh, we're up a little bit, but nowhere close to the market. Again, and th- there, there's another way to tell from the charlatans and stuff. If a guy won't tell you what his P&L is, you know, unless he's running a hedge fund or he's prevented from saying it publicly or whatever, if a guy won't tell you his P&L, there's usually a reason, right? <laughs> if it's really good, he's going to tell you. Um, but, you know, one of the one of the tough things about this environment is – I think that there, and I know you're with me, I think there are tremendous investment opportunities out there right now. It's just not in all the stuff everybody wants. And when you're in an environment like this, you almost know, well, you don't almost know, you know, that until the fever breaks, that stuff that is the really good bargain, that is the really good opportunity, is probably going to underperform. Probably, It's probably going to feel like you're missing the party. But if you want that better performance, if you really want those really, you know, incredible returns and and great investments and things like that. You got to look where nobody else is looking, you know, by definition. And, uh, and I think that is both the opportunity and the hardship in this market in its current form right now is that I think there are wonderful opportunities out there. It's just not the stuff everybody's talking about. It's not the stuff people are talking about at cocktail parties and it's not the stuff that's gone up 60% this year. Do you think that's fair? Hello. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I I mean, at the end of the day, some of this stuff is going to stay beaten down for a long time. Um, and, and like we, we talked about it before, but like we've seen some of these companies. In fact, one, one specifically is a coal company where it, it went up 10x. The thing was a 10 bagger. And then you look at it after that and the, and the EV to EBITDA. So it's, you know, basic valuation this cheapness was lower than before it 10 backed i mean that that tells you kind of where you're at with some of the disparities in pricing between um the the different ends of the bifurcation of the market it's like a a ridiculous barbell where some things where, where nothing makes sense on either end but for completely separate and different reasons yeah yeah i and i you and i talk about this on a day-to-day basis just the disparity in valuations. Um, again, I've just never seen anything like it. I've never seen things that look so unimpressive trade at such unbelievable breathtaking multiples and look at other things that are just hemorrhaging free cash flow, clean balance sheets. And you'd swear the thing was on the verge of bankruptcy. Um, you know, with the way right. <laughs> the valuation and the way the stock trades and all that kind of stuff, it, it really is remarkable. But the, but the other thing I think for people to remember is that this the, these are, um, you know, and it's it's somewhat hyperbolic to say this in this environment, but I do believe that this is a big financial bubble. I think it's probably going to be the biggest of all time, and well, probably be eclipsed at some point in the not too distant future. But but this is bubble thinking. This is what happens. This is why people lose a lot of money, right? Uh, and I can't tell you I know exactly how it's going to play out. Again, nobody does, but. Um, you know, these are all things you see 
I, I had an anecdote. I was joking the other day. I don't know if you, I don't know if I, you and I discussed this, but you know, at the tops of markets, everybody's a technician. At the bottom of markets, everybody's a value investor. You know, and what I meant by that is that you don't even at the tops of markets, you don't even need to. You, nobody, a lot of people aren't do, even doing fundamental work, right? They're just looking at a chart. Oh, buy the breakout, buy the breakout. At the bottoms of the markets, after everybody gets their teeth kicked in, everybody starts combing through 10Ks and, you know, <laughs> and, and really doing the fundamental research because that's what bit them, right? And uh, truthfully, I think the reality is probably the exact inverse. You know, when everything gets smacked down, go buy a list of your favorite companies because they're probably trading at a, at a, at a decent valuation. Right. It yeah. almost doesn't even matter at that point. Just buy, right. buy quality. Yeah. Yeah. Just, just go buy quality companies. You're going to be good to go. And when you're in an environment like this where everybody's just looking at charts, that's probably, well, universally it's been true. That's when you need to be looking at the fundamentals and you really need to understand what you own. And that's another interesting thing that you see at the peaks of bubbles and at the peaks of cycles. And I think this is very much true now is I've never been able to fully wrap my head around it, but, and I think this is what gets so many investors caught. And I think this is what loses so many people so much money. <clears throat> it, it stock valuations almost become the inverse. Like the more flimsy and unreal something is, the better it tends to do in an environment like this. And I think the reason for it is, is it's a better coat hanger for a story, right? Like if, if, if I've got too many, if I've got too much infrastructure and too much, you know, known assets or whatever, it's, it's kind of hard to create a narrative, right? Where, if I've got a company that's more of an empty suit, but has a cool name and a CEO that wears in the right industry, work, yeah, in the right industry, right? Uh, you know, I it's I, it's just it's cool. You know, like I I I keep going back. People are probably tired of me listening to this, but I would just challenge somebody. You know, a perfect example, and there's so many more egregious examples of overpriced stuff, but I just think it's phenomenal. Go look at Netflix and go compare it to Google and go explain to me the difference in the valuation. Right, Netflix trading at double what Google is. How? Why? Right? It's funny because you, you you started to talk about like the CEO aspect of this, and I, I bet you there is a correlation between like CEO FaceTime airtime, you know, articles and magazine covers to valuations. It you know, if you think about any of these companies that are that that at least seem pretty overvalued right now, you probably know who the CEO is. You know what they look like. You you know a lot about them. And then you think of some companies that are undervalued and you probably have, don't even know their name. You know what I mean? It reminds me of, um, I was a big Charlie Munger fan. We were talking about this here this last week cause he passed away. Um, but there was, uh, a, a guy that runs a podcast on it. He does like just reads biographies and does a podcast on that, but he got to have dinner with Charlie and he asked him, you know, why, why is the CEO of Costco? Like, why is there no books about him? Why do we never see any interviews with him? He's like, he's too busy working. That's what Charlie said to him. He's busy yeah. working. And that's that's kind of what I see some of this. Like the the CEOs for some of these really great companies, they're busy working. They're not they're not doing a Forbes interview every 30 minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you and I have had that talk on uh on social media as well. Right? Like I Yeah, like there's yeah, there's some luminaries out there that just seem to be on social media all day. It's weird. <laughs> I know, and everybody treats them as if they're like this, you know, high, you know, and we, you know, you, you we, we run a fairly modestly sized IRA, you know, 750, 800 million when it's all said and done. 
And even that, just this, I, I look at some of these guys, I'm like, I don't understand how these guys have time to be on Twitter so much. And at the end of the day, That's what great. you usually find out is they're nowhere close to what they, right? The, the underlying substance isn't anywhere close to the, to the advertising. Right. Yeah. Well, and that's 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 true in life as well. Uh, what else is there that you wanted? Like I said, I want to get you on here to talk to the folks in a little more extended version than the uh, than just the dots. Um, I'm trying to think of any uh, other things that we see. I, I, again, we could go data point by data point, but so it, one, thing I'll, one thing I'll, I'll I'll bring up real quick. We, we were just talking about it, but that's 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 margins. Um, operating margins on the S and P historically kind of bounce between like eight and 12, 13, usually like 13 is like kind of high end and eight's like a pretty nasty dip to eight. So really you're typically in the like 11 to 13. Um, well after COVID and we had obviously the in- incredible fiscal stimulus, we spiked and I mean spiked to 16% on operating profit margins, right? We're standing at about 13 and a half now. Uh, but if you look at the forward expectations for that, it's that we go back to 16%, hover in the 15s, but go back to 16 um, at, at some point next year. And so like I, I find I find the earnings estimates next year to be a little puzzling, but not like I can at least wrap my head around them because for the last few years, we've actually averaged about 11% earning growth. So for us to hit that next year, like I don't think it's going to happen, but. I can at least wrap my head around it, but going back to 16 on, on margins with, without all that fiscal stimulus and with, you know, the, the consumer clearly starting to pull back. Like, I don't, I don't know how I see how you extract 16% margins when everyone has a bunch of money and they don't really care how much things cost for a two year period. But I, I don't see how you get all the way back to that when people absolutely care how much things cost and they're trading down and everything uh, that, that's just something that stood out to me because um, you're mentioning it earlier, and, and I don't think I don't think a lot of people realize the aggressiveness that's priced into uh, margins going into next year. And my my assumption is some of the really solid Black Friday, Cyber Monday sales we saw will be at the expense of margins. Well, no, and, and we're already seeing that, right? Like, uh, but but and, and this was the point that I was alluding to yet or, or earlier when I was talking about growth decelerating. Okay. The, this is where, and this is where it just does not meld to me at all. And again, if I'm wrong, I will own it and I'll say it on the radio. But this is where, th- th- this is the part that just bakes my brain. If you are simultaneously forecasting a slowdown in growth and, a sl- and, and an uptick in unemployment and a quote unquote soft landing, okay. I do not understand, considering the last two and a half years, how in the world you can also be forecasting a margin expansion. I, it doesn't make any sense on the face of it. You've got higher labor costs. You've got higher input costs and growth slowing down. I, I, it doesn't make any – I mean – it, and it's not one of those things where you're like, could it happen? Couldn't it happen? I mean, you, you know, people at home can be the arbiter. Like you said, outside of some explosion in productivity, or I, I, I don't understand how those things can live in the same neighborhood. They just can't. I mean, can't, right? Like w- w- when you look at, you know, looking at the comps they're coming off of, looking at the surge in, in consumer spending, the record surge over the last two and a half, three years, you, you look at, 
And then you're going to sit there and look where margins are. And you're going to tell me that this is all slowing down. Rates have gone up, input costs, labor costs up, right? Growth slowing down, unemployment ticking up, and those margins are going to accelerate. Yeah. The, the only, the only thing I can imagine would be if, I mean, the way that to me, the only way that's really possible is if you're able to like outright start cutting pay, but then that would have such macro consequences that, that definitely no one's thinking about. But other than that, I don't see how you get there. And I, and yes, some people are, they're cutting back on like starting pay, but it's not like they're going to people that are sitting in, in the chair now and being like, Hey, cool. Uh, we need you to cut your pay by 10%. Now we may get there, but is that what they're pricing, <laughs> pricing into these margins, you know, pay cuts? No, of course not. So I, I don't, I really don't understand how, how they get there. Um, I, if we get up to 16 again, I, I would be, I'd be shocked outside of going back to the productivity boom. Sure. Like if you have a massive, if if you can have robots build all the stuff that people are building now, like, yeah, you can probably get some pretty sweet margins. I, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I, but at what cost? Great. Yeah. The CapEx on the front end for those probably isn't great either, but. Well, the CapEx on the front end is going to make the margins look really bad, but also what what is that going to do to the unemployment rate? Yeah. hundred percent. Like I, again, I just, you look at and, the, and I just, that's another thing is I, I feel like everyone just assumes like we're in a tight labor regime forever now. And the, if we have a productivity boom, it will come at the cost of employment, at least for, you know, a time. I, I almost feel like it was like winter, right. And, and we're now moving into summer. It's like late spring, early summer. And, uh, People are still showing up to the activities in like their big fur coats and everything, you know, like it, not, not my best analogy. Right. But they're all showing up, you know, their beanies on their boots and you're looking at them going, it's 68 degrees out here. Like, what are you, you, you're going to die, you know? And and it's like, they're not adjusting where the, well, yeah, it's tight labor. You're like, what, what created all that tightness? 0% rates and the biggest fiscal stimulus of all time. Okay. Now it's all gone and it's all reversed. What's the story now? How do you accelerate from here? I, and it's just, it's wild. We've been saying this for a year. What's wild is watching the data deteriorate just in the way, again, took a little longer than we thought, but just in the way that we thought it would and watching everybody still just ignore it. I, it really, like I said, I, the only real comp I've got to anything like this in my career was January of 2020. And, and even then it was like, I don't know. I don't know if you agree, but even then it wasn't as consistent as this is, right? There was too many unknowns then. Um, yeah. I mean, it looked like the market and the economy were way out of sync and that's why we played it the way we did. This is just bizarre because you've got market and analyst pricing in just the best of times and you're watching the economic indicators all go in the opposite direction. Uh, it's just, it's fascinating to me. Um, okay. So this next week coming up, what, what do we have on the docket? Kind of get we'll, we'll we'll close it up here. I know you and I both have some things. We well, we got a company party we got to get to too, pal. Um, Indeed. Yeah, you know we got our priorities here. Uh, what do we got coming up this next week that we should be keeping an eye on? Pulling it up now, and this thing is going slow. I know we have um, like durable goods orders and factory orders, that kind of stuff. On I'm really interested to see that durable goods number. I got a hunch that that durable good number could look really nasty. Yeah, it's one I would of those things that it, it is just that's very noisy data. So I don't, yeah, I, don't, I like don't put a lot into it. But that's what we'll have Monday. 
On Tuesday, we'll have uh, services, PMIs from ISM and S&P um, job openings. That'll be somewhat interesting to keep an eye on. Uh, then Wednesday, we'll have mortgage ac um, applications, ADPs, jobs, um, which I'm going to ignore. And then we'll have uh, productivity, unit labor costs. We'll get the trade balance. Going into Thursday, we'll have... Obviously, um, jobless claims, but we'll also have job cuts, which will be very important to keep an eye on to see if, hey, if we had any job cuts start to show up yet. Um, we get the household net worth number, which should be fantastic, most likely. Um, consumer credit, big to watch because that's really been slowing down. Um, and then Friday, the biggest thing, of course, is going to be jobs. Like this, is the, We're going to get the employment report next Friday, which will have major, major implications on everything. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And, and speaking of that, we are expecting 190,000 jobs being created. It was 150 last month. Yeah. I mean, that's a rocking economy, man. And we're expecting unemployment rate to freeze at 3.9% to not change. And inflation will stop precisely at two. <laughs> it will not go through that. Of course. Uh, yeah. No, it'll be magic. That That's the other thing, man. I feel like everybody's sitting there trying to i'm trying to think of now another per, but it, it's watching market expectations investor expectations of this market uh especially with the fed soft landing narrative it's like betting on uh it, it'd be like in the nba finals betting like your one prop bet is betting that Shaq goes 20 for 20 from the free throw line right like <laughs> is it possible yeah sure but <laughs> that that's the worst bet you could possibly make on the worst guy. Right. And like, and that's what I'm saying is like this belief that the fed is going to do everything perfectly, which they've never done. Right. They've never done that. Um, it's just fascinating, man. It's just fascinating. Yeah, but especially hey, not going to do a great job with the giant lag we have this time. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I'll be honest with you. I, I don't even, I don't, I don't envy their position in this particular scenario. Cause I kind of feel like they're damned if they do damned if they don't at this point, but you know, that's, that's, that's also the, that's the corner they painted themselves into. So they, they deserve it as far as I'm concerned. Uh, anyway. All right, sir. Well, thank you for joining us as always and um, get your tail over to that party. I'll see you shortly. All right. We'll do. All right, you guys, thank you for joining us and uh, <clears throat> another, another good session with Chase. Hope that was informative. And uh, we've got another great interview lined up next week, as long with the show, as long every day with the Daily Dots with Chase and I. You're not going to want to miss it. Chase will be on his own Monday through Wednesday next week in the Dots because I will be out of town. Uh, but we'll be back at it on Thursday, and the show uh, will hit off Friday as, as always. So have a great weekend. We'll see you next week. You're listening to Know Your Risk Radio podcast. Download and subscribe at knowyourriskradio.com. The opinions expressed in this program are for general informational purposes only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security. It is only intended to provide education about the financial industry. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult your financial advisor prior to investing. Any past performance discussed during this program is no guarantee of future results. Any indices referenced for comparison are unmanaged and cannot be invested into directly. As always, please remember investing involves risk and possible loss of principal capital. Please seek advice from a licensed professional. Investment advice cannot be given without a client service agreement. Bulwark Capital Management is an investment advisor representative of Trek Financial, LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor.